In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. You might be thinking, what in the world can I learn from this? I'm not a wife, <laughs> especially you men, right? As with any text of Scripture, the issue is not primarily what can I learn that's going to be helpful to me. The issue is what can I learn that's going to glorify Christ that I might be used faithfully in my service to the church of Christ. So whoever you are, no matter what your status in life is, whether male or female, whether a wife or not, the Lord will use His Word to strengthen you, to equip you, to minister to the body of Christ. There's a lot of discussion today about how husbands and wives can learn to get along better. It's no secret that people argue. You have two sinners in the same room, you've got sin in that room, especially over the long haul. And the difficulty of that relationship, the husband-wife relationship, whether it's the early days or 5, 10, 15 years into it, uh, on down the line, there's still conflict. There's still conflict. If two people agreed on everything, there'd be no need for one of them. You say, well, in a sense, that's kind of a biblical way to think, isn't it? Isn't it that two people become one flesh? But those two people still have two brains and two sets of desires and two interests in various different things, two completely different fingerprints in terms of spiritual giftedness. So there's a lot of confusion uh, regarding how to learn to get along. But the reality is there are going to be conflicts. And so you and I need to learn to increasingly understand how we, in the marriage relationship, if you're in a marriage relationship, can honor Christ most effectively. But there is a sense in which we need to turn our attention to the wives because this is how the, the text of Scripture is directed. As you know, Peter uses these words in the same way, you wives. So let's look at that. I'm going to speak as if I'm speaking to wives, and you can understand that the Lord will still use this text, as I said, to increase your sanctification and further equip you for ministry to the body. There's a man named Emerson Egrix, who's a pretty popular or at least at one time was, a very popular speaker, a Christian speaker. He uh, developed what he called a code, the code for getting along in marriage. He wrote a material called The Language of Love and Respect, Cracking the Communication Code with Your Mate. The publisher's promotional materials for the book went like this. A wife has one driving need, to feel loved. When that need is met, she is happy. A husband has one driving need, to feel respected. When that need is met, he is happy. When either of these needs isn't met, things get crazy. Love and respect reveals why spouses react negatively to each other and how they can deal with such conflict quickly, easily, 
and biblically on a promotional video for his Love and Respect conference, the announcer says, two colors, two views. Listen closely to this. Two colors, two views. Egrix then is filmed saying by video, I liken it to the fact that God designed women to look at the world through pink sunglasses and it colors what she sees. And she wears pink hearing aids and it affects what she hears. And she speaks through a pink megaphone and she expects everybody to know what she means by what she says. All of her girlfriends do. When she says through that pink megaphone into their pink hearing aids, I have nothing to wear. They say, oh, sweetie, we don't either, but we're going shopping later if you want to join us. Isn't that amazing? They all know what she means by what she says. He, on the other hand, has blue sunglasses, and it colors what he says. He has blue hearing aids, and it colors what he hears. And he speaks through a blue megaphone, and he expects everyone to know what he means by what he says when he speaks through that blue megaphone. All of his buddies do. He speaks through that blue megaphone into their blue hearing aids. I have nothing to wear. She ain't doing your laundry either. The announcer then says, come to the Love and Respect Marriage Conference. We'll share the secret that cracks the communication code between husbands and wives. Some time ago, someone asked me to watch his series, uh, multi-video series. I got halfway through the first video where he explained that women think in pink, men think in blue, therefore they both need to learn to think in purple, and my brain felt black and blue. But isn't it biblical, this whole pink and blue thing? He says men should love their wives, and women should respect their husbands, and it seems to work. And he even uses some Bible verses. Guess what's missing? The gospel. The gospel's missing. You won't find it in any of his materials. Not in direct doctrinal didactic format where he explains that the gospel is the solution no 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 there's a code and if you pay a certain amount of money come to a conference i'll give you the code well i'm telling you he thinks the code is you got to learn to think in purple and of course he explains that that what that means is that women learn to think in such a way that they understand how men think and men learn to think in such a way that they understand how women think but there's no gospel it's a complete diversion from Christ's methods, if you will, of learning to have a marriage that honors the Lord. So you may get changed behavior, but it's not rooted in how you can glorify Jesus Christ, but it is rooted in what you can get out of your spouse. How you can have a marriage that reflects Christ's relationship with the church is it's not in the book. It's not an issue. It's of no concern to the author. And then there's this extremely popular book called The Five Love Languages by Gary Chapman. In the publisher's description of the book, it says marriage should be based on love, right? But does it seem as though you and your spouse are speaking two different languages? Number one New York Times bestselling author Dr. Gary Chapman guides couples into identifying, understanding, and speaking their spouse's primary love language, quality time, words of affirmation, gifts, acts of service, or physical touch. So those are the five love languages. And you were born with a love language, and so your spouse has the responsibility to, to kind of sort you out and figure out what your love language is so he or she can speak to you in that language. The um, publisher goes on to say, by learning the five love languages, you and your spouse will discover your unique love languages and learn practical steps in truly loving each other. 
Chapters are categorized by love language for easy reference, and each one ends with simple steps to express a specific language to your spouse and guide your marriage in the right direction. A newly designed love languages assessment will help you understand and strengthen your relationship. You can build a lasting, loving marriage together. Guess what's missing? The gospel. It's not to be found. There's absolutely zero interest in the fundamental truths of the scripture that lead to a marriage that actually honors Christ and results in joy. So with books like this and ideas like this, husbands and wives may experience some pragmatic success in treating each other better, but the trouble is they've masked the problem with a Band-Aid and have never really addressed the real and foundational and eternal issue. So long as you treat me better, then I'm willing to treat you better. And so the world's concept of a 50-50 relationship, right, is that which we're talking about. You give 50%, I give 50%. We got a whole marriage. We got a 100% marriage. And somebody would say, no, no, that's obviously not right. You need a relationship that's 100-100. Sounds so much better. But let me tell you something. It's exactly the same thing as 50-50. It's nothing different. I give 100%, you give 100%. Man, we got a great, now we're talking. Because it takes two, right? You ever heard that? It takes two to make a great marriage. Really? You really see that concept in the Bible? What's 1 Peter verses 1 through 7 for? If it takes two to make a biblical marriage. It's worldly thinking. It's consumer mindset. It says you can have a great marriage so long as you do your role and your spouse does his or her role. As long as you're married to somebody who's willing to give at least 50%, maybe even 100%, you got it going on. You're set. It's going to work out. What does that say to the person who's married to the unbeliever? What does that say to the person who married an unbeliever as an unbeliever and came to know Christ? Oh, sorry. Sorry, you're never, ever going to see him learn to think in pink. It's just not going to happen. He can't. He's not able. Hmm. Say, but isn't it the goal? Isn't that the right goal? Getting to the place where we treat each other better. Well, it's not a bad thing, <laughs> right? To treat each other better. That's a good thing. But that, apart from spiritual sanctification rooted in Christ's provision in his atoning death and his life-giving resurrection, is nothing more than behavior modification. You may as well be a Mormon, right? You may as well embrace Roman Catholicism and just have a better life. You know, just treat each other better because all that is is works salvation. If there's no commitment to humility, there's no commitment to selflessness. There's no commitment to a willingness to not return revile for revile or insult for insult. Regardless of who you're married to, you're married to a sinner. And this idea that says the concept is 50-50 or even 100-100 dismisses the reality that there are going to be times where your sinning spouse is going to be unreasonable. What do you do with that? Well, you respond with an unreasonable response. This idea could only be motivated by selfishness. The idea that you have a love language that i got to figure out 
and I've got an assessment test. We'll sit down, we'll go through that assessment test together, and as soon as I figure out your love language, then I'll talk to you better. I'll understand you better. Here's a, here's a question. Where's that idea in the Bible? Isn't that a good question to ask? When we're talking about an issue and whether or not we agree on it, where's the concept in the Bible? You say, well, I, could, I think that I could come up with a case for the concept of a, of a, a love language in the Bible, and I'm totally with you. I'm totally with you, completely. And it's, it's boiled down to one word, and the word is humility. Your love language is humility. Okay, now you don't have to take the test or buy the book or go to the conference. Your love language is humility. That's how you communicate. Some have said, oh, the problem with our relationship is communication. No, it's not. It's a byproduct. It's a byproduct. Communication is only a vehicle of the condition of your heart. If you're unwilling to communicate, your spouse is unwilling to communicate, the problem is not communication. The problem is that lack of communication is the symptom of a greater problem, and it's a hard attitude, and it's a lack of humility. Well, as you know, in this text, Peter talks again, as if we didn't get enough the last two times, about submission. He talks about submission. This command here in this text to submit is the last in a line of three calls to submission in light of one example of submission. So you have an example of submission, what it looks like, the, the standard of submission, and then you have three commands or three calls to submission. Now remember that the context here is the disobedient husband. Okay, to be fair, not only to the text, but to women who are married to difficult men, which would be all of you if you're married, <laughs> in one sense. The greater context that you, uh, of, of this text is what? It's suffering. <laughs> so the immediate context is a marriage to a difficult, disobedient man, a man who's disobedient to the word, in many cases very likely unsaved, He might have some appearance of godliness, some appearance of religiosity, but is he obedient to the word of God as he subjected himself to the gospel? And then the greater context, as you know, is the context of suffering. If you go back with me to chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. So you're called to suffer, all of us. We're still in that same context, the context of suffering, looking to Christ as the standard of right suffering and seeing that he did not sin. You sin. I've sinned. You've sinned. When we are sinned against, we sometimes respond with sinful response. Not Christ. He committed no sin, nor was there even any deceit found in his mouth. You say, why though, (laughs) why does Peter give six verses to women and only one to men in this section? And some have, you know, suggested that men could maybe only handle one verse. That might be. Life for women in ancient Rome was immeasurably difficult. Today, in many senses, life for women is immeasurably difficult. But certainly in the context and the culture in which Peter was writing in ancient Rome, even under Jewish law as well as Roman law, women were property. They weren't persons. They were slaves. They were objects. When a woman was married, she was simply under new ownership. She was transferred from her father's ownership now unto the man with whom he had an agreement in an exchange of a dowry so that she would change addresses. 
And so when, when a woman would come to Christ, now she loves Christ, she wants to obey Christ, she sees Christ as her hope and her strength, this would have been extremely embarrassing for the man who hadn't come to Christ. If a man comes to Christ, no problem, he just drags his wife into the church and you know, she follows and does what he says because that's what a slave does. But for the woman, now she's got a major conflict on her hands. She's got a deep, abiding uh, devotion to Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God indwells her. She has a desire to honor him and follow him and submit to him. But she potentially has a husband who, if he is disobedient to the word, as Peter has said, doesn't want anything to do with that. He wants something else. So now there's even more conflict than there was. And so what does she do? One Roman leader dismissed his wife because she had once been seen in public without a veil. And this wasn't unusual. A man could divorce his wife in this era for any reason so long as he returned the dowry. Another man divorced his wife for speaking to a freed woman in public. Another for going to the public games. You know, you go to a baseball game or whatever in our era. Husband divorces you because you're out in public. You're fraternizing. You're actually acting as if you have something of value to say and interact with other people. Well, Peter says some things here that are very important. Let's talk about some things he doesn't say. I'll give you a list of things that Peter does not say. He doesn't say, wait till your husband becomes worthy of submission and then submit to him. He doesn't say remind him of his disobedience to the word. You know that deal where you get in the car on the way home and, you know, you're tempted to say, well, you know, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, he doesn't say to do that. Peter doesn't say leave him until he becomes obedient. He doesn't say pretend your husband is obedient to the word. Well, that's a problem. You got, you're married to a man who's disobedient to the word and you just kind of pretend that things aren't what they are. You know, maybe it'll get better. You know, kind of the psychological approach of, you know, act like it is what you want it to be and eventually it will be that. It's not honest. He doesn't say pretend you've been exemplary if you haven't. That can be a problem. The wife who thinks that her greatest problem in life is that her husband's not a believer or that at least he's not mature. You know, I'm maturing faster than he is. I'm way ahead of him, you know. So you know, the problem is him. You know, that is an indication that a wife thinks that her conduct has been exemplary without fail. Peter also doesn't say, believe you've blown it forever and give up. There's nothing in the text that should provide hopelessness for any woman in a difficult marriage. He also doesn't say, compare him to other husbands. That never happens, right? No, Peter doesn't say that. He doesn't say um, that a woman should, should go around saying, you know, I, I hear so-and-so complaining about her husband. Maybe we could work a trade. You know, start a reality TV show or something. Husband swap. Maybe that's already been started. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But Peter doesn't say that. He doesn't say, think about how if you were only married to that man, how things would be better. He doesn't say, figure out his love language. 
He doesn't say, tell everybody his weaknesses. Do everything you possibly can to let everybody, especially in the church, know just how faithless and disobedient to the word your husband is. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, be suspicious of his conduct. He also doesn't say, be naive about his conduct. Right? A lot of things Peter doesn't say. I felt like those are some things that we probably should nail down before we talk about what Peter does say. But Peter does say some things. So point number one in our text this morning or in our message this morning. Point number one. If our, so that statement is this, and it's in your bulletin. I'll read it to you. Wives, show your trust and hope in God by submitting to your husbands and restraining your lips so that you may win them over with your conduct from a gentle and quiet spirit. Point number one. Submit quietly to your disobedient husbands. Submit quietly to your disobedient husbands. Peter says, in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. In the same way as what? What's he referring to here? Well, back in chapter 2, verse 13, this is the first command to submit So we can trace this command here to submit in the same way back to this. So if you're going to submit in the same way, let's look at the way Peter has said to submit back in verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. And he gives a motive. Remember that? We're in this text. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Submit in that way. Submit in that way. Submit to those who are in positions of authority. And recognize that it's the will of God that you might do that, that you might even silence the ignorance of those who are foolish. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, servants... Be submissive. This is the second command to submit in 1 Peter. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect. Remember we talked about the fact that this respect was for God. It was a fear for God. Not a fear of man, but submit to your masters with fear for God, not only to those who are good and gentle. That's easy in some sense. Not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin you are harshly treated, you endure it with patience. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So submit, ladies, wives, submit in this way. Submit in such a way that results in the favor of God, the grace of God. Submit with that mindset. For those who have employers that are good, that's great. For those who have employers who are unreasonable, it's not so great. But you submit. You submit out of respect, out of fear for the Lord So that's what it means to submit in this way. In ancient Rome, as I said earlier, the law made women out to be essentially the equivalent of a slave. So this is a difficult difficult task. And I know there there, there could be myriad of questions that one might ask, well, what about when this happens? What about when that that happens? I think it might be reasonable to talk about some general categories 
Certainly the scripture allows for divorce when there's been adultery. Doesn't command it. Allows for it. In some cases that might be better. I think when there's safety in question, and there's potential danger for a wife and her children, then obviously her desire to protect her children, her God-given mandate to protect her children, could mean that some distance from the husband could be important. At one time, we could have said those are pretty rare circumstances. I, I probably wouldn't say that today, that that's rare. But certainly there are circumstances where a woman who is married to a man who is disobedient to the word, while not being disobedient to the word herself, has provision for extenuating difficulties in her life. But again, what is Peter saying here? He's not talking about that. He's talking about women who are married to men who are disobedient to the word, and he makes provision for that marriage to thrive. I honestly have had more opportunities than I could possibly count to counsel women who are going through difficulties in their marriage. And my, my hope is always to help that woman understand that the hope for a joyous life, even a joyous marriage, is not dependent upon your husband becoming obedient to the Word of God. That's certainly our desire. And we want that to happen. But how does she operate in the meantime Resting in the Lord and experiencing the joy of the Lord. Well, I think we should ask the question, what, is, what does Peter here say to do? He says, submit. To see the command and to embrace it, to look at it, to understand it. It's a military term for crying out loud. It really is talking about obedience and why. And why. So that they may be one. That's why. That's why. And again, maybe you're not in this predicament. Maybe, maybe you're not even close to a predicament like this, but I guarantee you, you know about one. I promise you, you know of a very difficult circumstance like this. And whether you have an inroad with that woman, with that wife, to give her specific direction from the Word of God, I am certain you have the ability to pray for her. Don't pray for her to have peace have comfort kind of mystically, magically out of the air. Pray that she would submit to her husband. Pray that she would have the strength to know what it looks like to submit to her husband. Why? So that he might be one. You don't want him to go to hell. Right? You don't want her husband to die and experience the, the eternal torment that you and I deserve. Pray. Pray. Back in uh, chapter 2, verse 15, Peter says, For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men, as I mentioned earlier. But further in our text here, he says, So that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives. Your conduct matters. Your conduct matters. Your behavior is so important. Yes, you, by your conduct, by doing the will of God, by being faithful to the Lord, might certainly and 
maybe even for sure, will silence the ignorance of foolish men. But in them being silenced in their ignorance, the hope would be that they would be one to Christ. That's the call here. You're probably familiar with 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul in verses 12 through 14 says, But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise, your children are unclean, but now they are holy. There's hope. There is hope for the woman who is married to the ungodly man that her children would actually be holy. You say, I don't stand a chance with my husband that my kids would ever come to know the Lord. No, that's dead wrong. You may have holy children. How? Why? How does that happen through your conduct? And my hope would be that as devastating as this might be in the moment, and you think, oh, my word, how did I miss this? Today's a new day. You say, but my kids are older. Yeah, so are you. And you're wiser. And you're more humble. And you're more equipped. And you're surrounded by godly women who will strengthen you and pray for you and help you and assist you in being that woman who by her conduct would be used for her children to be saved, whether they're small or older. So a woman might ask, a wife who is married to a man who is disobedient to the word might ask, so what should I say, though, when he says this? You know what I mean? You know, when he starts talking all this whatever... What should I say? Nothing. Right? You win him over with what? Without a word. But he gets angry if I say something, and he gets angry if I don't say anything. Which makes him angrier? Which makes him angrier? When you say nothing? Or when you say something that he doesn't like? Has he ever reminded you of something you didn't say? The point is, don't try to change him, win him, save him, or sanctify him with words if he's disobedient to the word. You say he's always disobedient to the word. Then always win him over without a word. He's disobedient to the word. Okay, what's your success rate with fixing that with your words? God's word hasn't changed him yet, so you think yours will? No, your behavior is your best instrument of influence for his sanctification. You might say, but you don't know me. I'm a very persuasive person. Usually I can get him to change. Is that what you want? You want his change to be the result of your efforts? Of course not, because that's fleshly change. Of course you can persuade him to some degree, somehow. Maybe he's rock hard and he's not willing to really be budged or moved even the tiniest little bit. But still, what you say has some repository in his mind. It's in there. He's heard it. It might be a negative response. It might be a positive response. But ultimately, that's not what you want. You don't want to be. When what are we talking about? When your husband is disobedient to the word, you don't want you to be the source of change of his behavior. 
Who do you want that to be? You want it to be the Holy Spirit. You want God to change him. And I think it's fair to ask, how's God going to change him if you're standing in the way? Right? Verse 2 in our text goes on to say, As they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Chaste is obviously the word where we get the word chastity, and it means pure. I'll never forget years ago, a girl that I knew was engaged to a guy, and, and she saw a picture of Michael Jordan. And her words were, Michael Jordan, now there's my man. And I said, really, I thought he was your man. She wasn't thinking anything of that. She wasn't trying to be offensive. But I think we should ask the question, is it reasonable for a woman, for a wife especially, to admire other men in their physical appearance? Is that reasonable? How does that help? Is it reasonable to dwell on it? Talk about it, harbor thoughts about other men, talk about them, whether her husband is around or not. See, that's not chaste. It's not pure. It's divided. Yeah, my husband, he's, you know, he's my husband, but man, so-and-so. Now that guy, woo-hoo. It's not chaste. Uh, so, Peter says wives should be chaste, they should be respectful. What is respectful? It's reverent. Again, this is the word that means fearful. There's, a, there's an upright conduct. There's integrity. So it is your conduct, wives. It is your conduct that will be used to change him, but only when your behavior is driven by the right heart attitudes, which leads us to the next point. Point number two, beautify your heart beautify your heart if point number one is submit quietly to your disobedient husbands then point number two beautify your heart i think flows very well from our text from verse three your adornment must not be merely external braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious in the sight of God. One article I read said that women spend an average of $15,000 in their lifetimes on makeup. Now, I suppose if you spread that over a lifetime, that might not be all that much. But one company polled 1,000 U.S. adults to find out just how many beauty products men and women are using on a daily basis. From moisturizers to hair care goods to makeup, it says they wanted to see just how well-stocked each respective gender is. We found that 35% of women use one or two products daily, while 17% use three or four products a day. Meanwhile, the majority of men, 54%, don't use a single product when getting ready in the morning. You had to do a study to know that. <laughs> but 7% of women use up to six items compared to a mere 1% of men. Turns out that guys really aren't so high maintenance, the article says. Women reportedly spend over $426 billion a year on beauty products. Conclusion, it's expensive to be a woman. Is it wrong to adorn yourself externally? Of course not. Is it wrong to wear makeup? No, ladies, it's not wrong to wear makeup. Please wear makeup. 
It's not what Peter is saying. The point is that that can obviously become an idol. In Isaiah chapter 3, and you know this, Peter pulls a lot from Isaiah, right? So he would have known this. Obviously, all the biblical writers of the New Testament knew what Isaiah had said. But in Isaiah chapter 3, he says, Moreover, the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud and walk with heads held high and seductive eyes and go along with mincing steps and tinkle the bangles on their feet, therefore the Lord will afflict the scalp of the daughters of Zion with scabs and the Lord will make their foreheads bare. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, headbands, crescent ornaments, dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, feastal robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. Now it will come about that instead of sweet perfume, there will be putrefaction. Instead of a belt, a rope, instead of well-set hair, a plucked-out scalp, instead of fine clothes, a donning of sackcloth, and branding instead of beauty. Your men will fall by the sword and your mighty ones in battle, and her gates will lament and mourn, and deserted she will sit on the ground. So this was God's judgment in an era for Judah when the women had found themselves able to adorn themselves in, in such a way that simply drew attention to the outer person. What was the problem? Little or no attention given to the inner person. So we're not talking here about doing one and not the other, and we're certainly not talking about balance. But what we are talking about is an adornment of the inner person. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now let me just say, ladies, that I think by and large this is, this is kind of an in-house issue with you gals that in discipleship, especially, uh, I would say especially a younger gal, she's not asking the question of older women, how do you think I dress? There's a reason she doesn't want to know what other people think. I, as a school principal years ago, as well as as a pastor, have made this an issue of being off limits for me. I don't think about it. I don't look at it. I don't consider it. It's not an issue for me. I have a wife, and... Uh, for me, she's the standard of beauty in all things. And so regardless of uh, what anyone else is wearing or not wearing or whatever, it, it's not something I address or deal with. She can do that. You can do that with each other. Peter here is pointing to some specific terms that I think we all understand well enough. Modesty. Discretion. You know, so that the emphasis is not on the braided hair, the gold, the pearls, the costly garments. Not to say that some of those things in measure with the right heart attitude are wrong. It's not what he's saying. He's not saying those things are wrong. The point is, how are you adorned? And let me boil this down this way. 
The woman who adorns herself internally in the quiet person of the hidden heart, and we'll look more closely at that verbiage in a moment, the woman who adorns herself that way has the discernment to know what discretion and modesty are. And part of that discretion comes from a willingness to think through that with other women together. In our text, though, Peter goes on to say, as I mentioned, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here in our text this morning where Peter is calling wives to adorn themselves with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, where does that come from? Where does that come from? It comes from the one who has caused her to be born again, granting her not that which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. So, if a woman is to be devoted to having a quiet spirit, a a gentle spirit, that which is of imperishable quality, And to understand how that can be imperishable is to understand that the character that God has produced in her is an imperishable character. God has caused that to happen. She should cultivate it. In verse 23 of chapter 1, Peter says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The the grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. You know, the woman who says to her husband, who is disobedient to the word, I chose Christ, why won't you? She's not resting in the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit because she's not resting in the imperishable gift of a God who caused her to be born again. She's leaning on her supposed willingness to have ushered herself into the kingdom, and so she expects him to do the same thing. The one who leans on what the Lord has deemed to be imperishable has a substantial impact that lasts. She's not trying to work him into change because she worked herself into change. The person who looks back on 1 Peter and dismisses everything regarding God's sovereignty has hamstrung himself or herself with regard to an understanding how one can actually be effectively involved in someone else's life, especially in the venue of suffering, especially in the venue of submitting to a husband who's disobedient to the word, especially in the context of doing it without a word. Well, I changed. Why won't you change? See that? The man-centered approach to all things scriptural sells everyone short in their ability to do what God has called them to do. These terms, uh, gentle and quiet spirit, they're not hard to understand. Gentleness, as you know, means meekness, humility, mildness, 
The woman who is gentle is unassuming. She's willing to respond to harshness with a blessing. She's quiet. She's peaceful, tranquil. She doesn't believe she needs to fix everything. She knows she can't. The woman who thinks she can fix everything, though it's been proven innumerable times she can't, is just stuck in her own man-centered pride. So, the woman who is gentle and quiet is resolved to be gentle and quiet, trusting the Lord for what she knows she cannot do. And I love this, and I, I think you probably do too. Peter says, it's precious in the sight of God. The woman with a gentle and quiet spirit, that's precious in the sight of God. It's valuable, right, to him. It is of great cost. It brings God joy. It brings him pleasure to see a woman reflecting the character of his son in the midst of difficulty. Right? It's not only impactful on her family, it's valuable. It's costly to God. The Lord looks at that and, and sees that as a beautiful thing. You're trusting me, the Lord would say. Point number three, then. Point number three. We've looked at the, the fact that women should submit quietly. Point number one, submit quietly to your disobedient husbands. Number two, beautify your heart. That's what we were just talking about, the adornment of the internal person, the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Beautify your heart. Point number three, hope in God without fear of man. Ladies, this is the key. You say, how in the world could anybody submit to that loser? Here's the key. First of all, stop calling him a loser if you're doing that. Hope in God without fear of man. And by the way, Sarah here is seen as this example. In Isaiah 51, verse 2, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, I called him. Then I blessed him and multiplied him. Look to them. Look to them. But how could Sarah submit to Abraham? How could she call him Lord he lied at least twice, we know of twice, nearly getting everyone in his assembly killed by two kings who were very angry because he didn't tell them Sarah was his wife. How does she submit to him? How does she call him Lord? And how could she do it without fear? Scripture tells us that, ladies, you are her daughter if you do this without fear. It's one thing to do it. It's another thing to do it without fear. If you do this without fear, you are the daughter of Sarah. You have Christ. You have the written record of Christ's character and his example. That's how. You can, in fact, hope in God without fear of man. You have Christ and, and the written record of his character and an, his example. Sarah had that. Sarah had some understanding of what it meant to look forward and to trust him. Those who had the prophet Isaiah had that to an even greater degree, for he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. 
He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. You see, it was not the outer adornment that drew people to Christ. You know, I think every movie that's ever been made having anything to do with Jesus made him ultra good looking. Well, because that sells. Who's going to see a movie with an ugly Jesus? But Isaiah 53 paints him as being uncomely. There's nothing about him that drew people to him physically. He was despised, it says, and we did not esteem him. Verse 4 of Isaiah 53. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. See, ladies, that's, that's how. That's how. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. It means, that word means insult. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And when we're in this text, I told you, this is the heart of the whole book. While suffering, he entrusted himself to him who judges righteously. Now think of it, in the moment... When your husband is disobedient to the word, whether he's an unbeliever or a believer, he's disobedient to the word. What are you thinking? I've got to fix him. I've got to change his behavior. He's an embarrassment to the family. He's scaring the kids. I don't like him anymore. He clearly doesn't like me anymore. I've got to fix this. I've got to do something here. I've got to, I know, I'll entrust him to me. If he would only listen. That wasn't the Savior's attitude. That wasn't the sovereign king's attitude. His attitude was to win them over without a word. Without a word, the text tells us. No deceit found in his mouth. Not only that, no word found in his mouth. But he did what did, what did he do? He kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You can do that. You can do that. You can do that. Hope in God? Are you not chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? Are you not his adopted child? Did he not cause you to be born again, giving you the imperishable inheritance of eternal life? Can you not entrust yourself to him? who judges righteously, who's granted you this imperishable and undefiled gift that can't fade away. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Can't you entrust yourself to him? 
Verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Can't you entrust yourself even though you're married to a disobedient man, a man who's disobedient to the word of God? Can you not entrust yourself to the one who caused him to die on your behalf? The one who, who was pleased to crush him, to crush his own son? That you would receive the eternal, imperishable gift of eternal life? Verse 20 in chapter 1 tells us, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Can you not hope in him without fear of what that's going to look like? Fear that things are going to get worse. Fear that he's going to take advantage of you. Fear that he's going to think that you're a doormat and you're just laying down. Now he can completely run over you. Can you not... Entrust yourself to him who judges righteously without fear. To close, I want to give you some, some application points. We've got a number here that I, I hope will be helpful. Number one, number one, in thinking through all this, in, in thinking through submitting quietly to your disobedient husband, in thinking through beautifying your own heart, in thinking through hoping in God without fear of man, number one, pray of course of course you knew i would say that and of course you do that and of course you pray for those that you know who are wives married to men disobedient to the word of god but pray number two be influenced by a sarah be discipled don't dismiss the fundamental matter of discipleship ministry you say i don't like how you do it at the anchor you got a better idea you got a better idea, tell me. Because what we're seeing is women who desire to be godly subjecting themselves to godly women, and it's working, if I can say it that way. Christ is being honored through our discipleship ministry. Godly women are humbling themselves, sacrificing their lives for women who desire to be godly women, and God is producing that in us, and that is the bedrock of all ministry. Discipleship. Find a Sarah. I didn't say find a perfect Godly woman, find a Sarah, one who will invest in you. Number three, ask their children what they think about you. Ask your children what they think about you with regard to this text. Oh, but my kids aren't believers. They couldn't have it. Really? They're perfect then. They're perfect then. The perfect person for you to ask, what do you think of me? And ask them individually and ask them to be honest. 
You might get a better response than you had hoped for. Yeah, Mom, you're not perfect, but I know you love us. I know you love Christ. I know you love the church. You might get a mixed response. Well, Mom, it's been tough with you, but thank you for asking. Maybe we can work on this together. Ask your husband. Oh, now you're crazy. (laughs) Yeah, because you know what? The command is to submit to him. How can you submit to him if you're not knowing what he really thinks? Ask your husband what he thinks about whether or not you have a gentle and quiet spirit. And ask him for some sort of rating, if you will. You know, guys, don't, don't suggest this, by the way, guys. This is not for you to do. But ladies, go to your husband and say, you know, how am I doing in terms of winning you over without a word? Nothing wrong. Not asking that. Ask, number five, ask Christian women what they think. You know, it's not like, you know, you're, you're getting a grade. You know, you're asking, to, you're asking the Lord to help you be humble to get input from godly people and maybe even ungodly people to help you see reality. Some of the best input I get is from people who don't like me, right? They don't care. They've got nothing to lose. I already don't like you, so I'm just going to tell you more. So, okay? You know how that works. What if I'm not a wife? And obviously, I'm not a wife. What if you're not a wife and you, you, know, you want some practical help from this message, some practical instructions? Number one, beautify your heart. Beautify your heart. Every Christian should beautify his or her heart. Every Christian should have a gentle and quiet spirit. This isn't exclusive to women. Every woman, every man should be willing to restrain his lips. He who is wise restrains his lips. You know, whether you're a wife or not, you're thinking about maybe one day becoming a wife, that's a great thing to do. Beautify your heart. Be becoming the future wife who has the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay? Beautify your heart. Number two, be influenced by a Sarah. Be being readied for marriage. Be being equipped to minister to others. You know, maybe the Lord will use you even as a single woman to minister to wives who are married to men disobedient to the word. What a great privilege. I received a letter years ago when I was working as a singles pastor. Uh, This person said to me, I'm amazed that you are um, a pastor to singles when you yourself aren't single. Well, my first response, well, I used to be. Um, obviously, I wasn't born married. But in addition to that, you, know, you don't need to be exactly in the midst of someone's exact circumstances to be able to minister to them. What do you need? You need a Bible. You need to have a great love for the Bible. You need to have a great love for God and for His Word so that you can take people to the Word and tell them what it says. Well, here it is. You have a discussion about that. You can be helpful to someone. Number, number three. Don't consider marrying an unbeliever. Get it off your list. I don't care who he is, how nice he is. Years ago, I, I was walking through the gym. This was back in my principal days. I was walking through the gym. I saw the vice principal, German guy, wonderful guy, faithful guy. But man, he was rigid. I mean, he wasn't early. He wasn't late. He was on time. You know, everything was like right to the, the, the second. Great guy. 
And uh, he's talking to this girl, wonderful girl, uh, sophomore, junior. And I knew that she was kind of interested in this guy who was a nice guy. And, you know, I, you know, I'd known him pretty well for a couple years. And uh, she walks away from, from the vice principal and, and runs over to me and says, oh, wait a minute, Mr. Barnett, Mr. Barnett, um, what does it mean when, when a guy is a really nice guy? And I said, absolutely nothing. She said, oh, that's what Mr. Connor said. <laughs> so what? He's a nice guy. So what? You mean anything? Is he humble? Is he going to be verse 7, which we'll get to next, right? Not today. Is he going to be verse 7, the man who lives with you in an understanding way? Are you vetting him? Or are you fixing him? But he's such a nice guy. I think I can, I think I can get him there. You know, romance evangelism, it's, you know, it's, that's the way it works. No, no, no. Don't consider it. You have no idea whether or not the Lord is going to save him, no matter how nice he is or becomes. Do not put yourself in the position where you need to hear a message on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6, over and over and over again. Ask any lady who's ever been married to an unbeliever. Just ask. Number four, be ready with the word to encourage Christian wives. If you're not a Christian wife, be ready to encourage from the Word of God. Know the Word of God. Know this text so that guys like Gary Chapman and Emerson Egricks and James Dobson and whoever else has some belief that he has the ability to take worldly thinking, called psychology, and throw some Bible verses on it and help you, will be exposed for the false intent of his heart and the fallacy of his ministry, that you would know the word. You could quickly and rapidly say, well, let's look at the word. Let's go to, I know, I know, let's go to 1 Peter 3. See what that says in the context of 1 Peter. Let's go to Ephesians 5, right? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 11. Let's look at those texts together. I can help you. I got a Bible. Let's do this, right? Be equipped. And then last, for husbands... Your wife does not need you to say, now remember what Peter says. Don't do that, guys. Don't do that. We'll pick this back up with verse 7. You husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Father, we rest in the veracity of your word. We don't look to twist it or tweak it or do anything to it that might make it softer, more palatable. But we receive it. And I confess to you that, in a sense, I feel drastically unqualified to talk to wives who are married to men who are disobedient to the word. And on the other hand, my qualification to do that doesn't come from me or who I am, but from the reality that you have called upon men to shepherd the flock and to tell them the truth. So Lord, I hope this morning, as it is each Sunday, would be that you would use your word, that each person would drink deeply of your eternal word, knowing that it is preserved forever in heaven. And yet, 
you've condescended to us with kindness and mercy and grace and given it to us that we might see it not as that fading flower or that dying grass, but that it is, in fact, eternal. It has always been and it always will be because you have always been and always will be and your heart has not changed. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yet inside time, space, and history, you give us specific theology upon which to lean and rest and find our hope and our joy and love and involvement with other people. And in various places, you've given us very, very specific commands. So Lord, I pray that you would give hope to that woman today who is a wife married to a man who is disobedient to the word. I pray also for him. you would win him. Not with her words, but with her conduct. And Father, we ask these things for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.